Welcome to the Paradigm Shift on 4ZZZ 102.1, where we challenge the assumptions of our current society to resist oppression and investigate alternative ways of living for a world based on justice, solidarity, and sustainability. Welcome to the Paradigm Shift on 4ZZZ 102.1 FM, your community radio station broadcasting to you wherever you are, whether you're stuck at home or whether you're out at work. My name is Andy. It's great to be here in the Triple Z studio. I've been away for a while and I've been back here the last week. It's nice coming in here a few times. And also I stumbled across a collection that I had of all the interviews I've done for Paradigm Shift over the years and it's a bit hard pulling together a show in these crazy times and so I thought, oh, I'm going to have a look through these things and I thought we would go back to one of the, and a very popular interview I did probably a year and a half ago with Bruce Pascoe, Australian author, most famously author of the book Dark Emu, a re-evaluation of Australia's history, pre-colonialization and colonization, I should say. Um, uh, and so I spoke to Bruce, yeah, about not only about that book, but about the experiences of writing. Of course, since this interview, there have been other controversies with Andrew Bolt launching a bit of an attack against Bruce Pascoe and even Bruce being referred to the Australian Consumer Affairs Commission or something like that over... Uh, claims that he was profiting from falsely claiming he was Aboriginal, which is not true because he is Aboriginal and also he sort of makes clear that he didn't grow up as an Aboriginal person. Anyway, well, we, we don't get to talk about that so much because it happened subsequently. But this is an interview I did probably a year and a half ago with Bruce Pascoe. Oh, we'll also start off with a bit of a speech that Bruce gave that covers some of the ideas of the book and then we'll chat a bit more in depth with him about it. Almost no Australians know anything about the Aboriginal civilization because our educators, emboldened by historians, politicians and the clergy, have refused to mention it for 230 years. Think for a moment about the extent of that fraud. Imagine the excellence of the advertising required to get our most intelligent people in 2017 to believe it. Imagine the organisation required in the publishing industry to fail to mention Aboriginal agriculture, science and diplomacy. Don't blame Pauline Hanson. Don't blame Jeff Blaney and Keith Winshuttle. Blame Manning Clark, Gough Whitlam and every editor of Meandrin and Overland for they too were guilty of that omission. What a mission. 
Well, let's look at what the explorers reported of the Aboriginal agricultural economy and see if you can remember any priest, parent or professor alluding to it. Lieutenant Gray in his 1839 exploration of parts of Western Australia so far unseen by Europeans saw yam gardens over five kilometres wide and extending a distance past the horizon further than he could see simply because they had been so deeply tilled he could not walk across them. Sir Thomas Mitchell in the country that is now the Queensland New South Wales border area rode through nine miles of stooped grain that his fellows describe as being like an English field of harvest. Isn't that word stook an interesting word when applied to what we thought we knew about Aboriginal history. Isaac Beatty saw the hillsides of Melbourne were terraced in the process of yam production and that the tilth of the soil was so light you could run your fingers through it. Mitchell saw these yam fields stretching as far as he could see near Garryward in the Grampians. He extolled the beauty of these plains assuming that God had made them so that he could discover them, not once thinking how peculiar it was for the best soil in the country to have almost no trees. This was a managed field of harvest. George Augustus Robinson saw women stretched across these same fields of horticulture in the process of harvesting the tubers. Charles Sturt had his life saved in central Australia when he came upon people who were harvesting a river valley and supplied him with water from their well, roast duck, and cake. Both Mitchell and Sturt described the baked goods as the lightest and sweetest they had ever tasted. How many historians have read those comments and yet not one has considered that it would be in the nation's commercial and culinary interests to find out the particular grasses from which those flowers were made? How many thought that it would be interesting for our children to learn at school? E.M. Kerr noticed that as he brought the first vehicle into the plain south of Echuca, his cartwheels turned up bushels of tubers. Once again, some of Australia's best soils were almost bereft of trees, the plains having been horticulturally altered to provide permanent harvests of tubers. Unlike Mitchell's self-indulgent congratulations, Kerr was aware who had produced this productivity and later recognised that it was his sheep that destroyed it. James Kirby is one of the first two Europeans in the country of the Wadi Wadi near Swan Hill. They pass gigantic mounds of bulrushes, kumbungi, stacked up and steaming and wonder about the vast enterprise but never think about the productivity of that plant. Aboriginal people were harvesting the base of the stem as a delicious salad vegetable and making mounds of the leaves to process starch. Just one more source of baking flour. Kirby notices a man fishing on a weir his fellows had built across the river. Well, Kirby assumes with great reluctance that blacks had built it, but only because he knows he's the first white man to see them. The construction of the dam included small apertures at the bottom so that water and fish movements could be controlled 
Kirby describes the operation. A black would sit near the opening and just behind him, a rough stick about 10 feet long was stuck in the ground with a thick end down. To the thin end of this rod was attached a line with a noose at the other end. A wooden peg was fixed under the water at the opening to the fence to which this noose was caught. And when the fish made a dart to go through the opening, he was caught by the gills. His force undid the loop from the peg and the spring of the stick threw the fish over the head of the black, who would then in a most lazy manner reach back his hand, undo the fish and set the loop again around the peg. The man refuses to look at Kirby, even though he knows Kirby is watching. Already the Waddy Waddy have decided correspondence with Europeans is not to their advantage. But this man can't hide his pride in the technique. You could say his manner was insouciant. But how does Kirby explain the operation? He writes, I've often heard of the indolence of the blacks and soon came to the conclusion after watching a black fellow fish in such a lazy way that what I had heard was perfectly true. So weirs and constructions, machinery and productivity, all rendered by Kirby as laziness. Wasn't he describing an operation which would fit neatly into any description of European inventiveness and industry? Coast to coast instrumental. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. live and direct. Intricate Way Studios. First mix is Mob Stand Up. Yeah, why is my history such a mystery? Why is my history Come on. such a mystery? Why is my history such a mystery? Why? Oh, 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 why? Oh,
your land spiritually Talk talk, I'm Annie like histamine Standing with warriors next to me And we sitting scorching heat waves Whew, that I'm blistering While others are out there steady whispering Revolution is the truth you need to be whistling But instead they submitting to their conditioning Instead of being visionaries See that's the issue They submitting to their conditioning Instead of being visionaries So why is my history such a mystery? Why is my history such a mystery? Why is my history? Why is my history? Why is my history such a mystery? That is Pre featuring Baby Sun and CPG with Why Is My History Such a Mystery? That track off the uh, Brisbane Blacks Invasion Day mixtape, which came out, I suppose it's probably five years ago now, actually, that it came out. But great little record that you can still find, I'm pretty sure, online. You can still download that. Featuring a whole bunch of local Aboriginal rappers and poets. Um, you're on the Paradigm Shift on 4 Z. We, what you just heard before that song was a speech from Bruce Pascoe talking about some of the content of his book, Dark Emu. It certainly caused a stir, that book, um, slowly building up a, a massive audience, um, a lot of influence and a bit of notoriety amongst people who don't want the true history of this country told. Um, and I did speak with Bruce Pascoe a little while ago now, probably a year and a half ago, um, but I'm interested, I can't even remember that much about what we talked about, so I'm interested to listen to this as I'm sure you are at home, so let's have a listen to me chatting with Bruce Pascoe. Could you start by introducing yourself? Yeah, my name's Bruce Pascoe, um, I'm a Ewan, Panlapana and Bunrong man. Uh, our heritage goes from Tasmania, uh, to the south coast of New South Wales. And you're an author. You've written over your life uh, mostly novels, but uh, quite notably in the last few years you wrote a history book, Dark Emu. What was the inspiration of moving into the, the realm of nonfiction? Uh, well, it was uh, the fact that I couldn't find any Australian histories which described the experience of my own family. And um, so... I decided I would have to write a history which talked about how Aboriginal people actually experienced colonialism. And uh, as part of this history, it involves digging up, I guess, elements of Aboriginal culture that haven't been covered in history before, some of the, the technology and the agriculture techniques and things like this that were a part of Aboriginal life but have been not recorded by traditional historians. Is that right? That's right. I, um, I wrote a book on the contact wars of Australia before Dark Emu called Convincing Ground and the information I was finding out there, while not particularly relevant to the uh, contact wars, it was really disturbing me because they were talking about what uh, explorers and um, Australian farming pioneers, so-called pioneers, were witnessing of um, Aboriginal people's land use. And so much of it was a complete culture shock to me. Um, I was ashamed uh, as an Aboriginal person not to have known this. So I was finding out about Aboriginal people uh, tilling land, 
that was so vast it reached to the horizon, uh, stooking and harvesting grain, that uh, stooks of which went across country for nine miles. All of these things which just didn't fit with the hunt, hunter-gatherer myth that we'd been told by our forefathers and our educators. So I was more or less um, stuck with having to write that book. So you, you said that it was almost by accident you came across this in the accounts of early settlers. Was it difficult finding this information? No, that's the, that's the shameful thing. Um, it's all on the public record. And most of the things I've found out, you can walk into your local library and find out because they're in the major explorers' journals. Uh, there were some other things which um, I had to dig a little deeper for, but even if you just read the explorers' journals, that information's there. Uh, the two examples I gave you are in Mitchell and Sturt. And, and the thing that really worried me was that I wasn't the first person to have read these accounts. So other people had read them before me and not considered those facts significant for Australia. Um, I think perhaps my advantage was that I was looking at it from an Aboriginal point of view, so it did interest me anyway. But it's still depressing to think of all those professors that went before me reading those things and not seeing it being of any interest to uh, Australia. You know, our history, as taught to me when I was at school and university, was pretty boring. You know, you get enough of wheat, wool and gold. And, uh, you know, this other information would have been fascinating. And when I, start, when I talk to young Australians about it, between the ages of five and 25, they're fascinated because they didn't know it. It's interesting stuff in its own right. It talks about human development that goes back a long, long time, long, longer than any other place on Earth. And naturally, people are interested in it because it talks to them about the human experience, the human history. And um, I'm just glad that we're now starting to have that conversation. You said that for you as an Aboriginal person, you'd never heard this before and it was new information. Is that the case for, for most Aboriginal people across Australia, that these histories are, are lost even to them, or are there some places yeah. that have a memory of... Most people, most Aboriginal people didn't know this stuff because they'd had an Australian education and they'd lived under Australian political rules. So you don't find out these things because the whole myth of the colonisation is against you being able to uh, learn these things. So... Since I've been speaking about it, though, Aboriginal people have contacted me, um, and that, this happened after convincing ground as well, because I I learned a lot about massacres that had never been recorded, and including one that's you know an hour and a half drive from where I live, which involved members of my own family, and that was very disturbing to know that I was living on country that had had that experience for my own family was very disturbing, but. Aboriginal people started writing to me before and after Dark Emu come out with incredible information about how our people managed the land and how we managed crops and how we managed food production, how we managed food preservation and food storage. And these things you just don't hear about 
in uh, years one and two at university, you know, and we ought to. It's Australian history, and our young people ought to know these things. And it shouldn't be hidden from them, and it has been deliberately hidden from them. What are the implications for Aboriginal people now learning this information? Well, I'm, I'm very, very impressed by young Australians, and I'm very impressed by young Aboriginal Australians too. And these are people who are more likely to be worried about plastics in the ocean, uh, degradation of the sea and degradation of the land, and more worried about what we're doing to refugees. So these people, both black and white, are interested in these ideas from a social justice point of view. So it's a refreshing conversation for someone as old as me um, to have this kind of discussion with young Australians because my own generation is pretty hopeless. And, you know, to be cheered up at this end of my life is a great thing. Is 
Z 102.1 Paradigm Shift that was Mojo Juju with Native Tongue um, we're speaking with Bruce Pascoe author of the book Dark Emu let's go back to that interview you said that it's been deliberately hidden these ideas obviously uh, it was in the interests of pastoralists and things like that to not say that the, the land had previously been worked by somebody else what, what do you think are the forces behind this uh, hiding of history? Greed. Land greed. And land greed is the thing that has devastated the world. Aboriginal people have been here for 120,000 years. And in that time, we developed a law which everybody would get fed, everybody would have a house, and everybody would take part in the culture. And when they were old, they'd be looked after. And that land war was forbidden. That's the, the culture that began, we don't know when, uh, but sometime around 100,000 years ago. And it was picked up by the new generation every year. Every generation readopted this law. And that's incredible because the rest of the world was in chaos and turmoil with one king uh, assassinating another king, um, one queen having another queen's head cut off, all of this kind of rubbish, which is all about greed. It's not about justice. It's not about law, not about looking after the people. It's about ambition. And here we have young Aboriginal people adopting the law that their forefathers set down. And I'm sure that it was done because of the intrinsic fairness. How could you argue with a law which said that everybody would be treated equally. It, it's the longest lived uh, social development on earth and was probably the first where people began to live together and make laws together uh, in an organised way. And Australia doesn't think about these things, but I think it's vital. This is probably our greatest export, the export of generosity and peace. Do you think that Dark Emu... Uh, contributes to Australia's notion of national identity by shining a light on a bit of our pre-colonial history? Yeah, it certainly does. Um, I speak to so many Australians, both black and white, who say the book changed their life. Well, it changed my bloody life too. Um, it's had an enormous impact on me. Um, and not all of it positive, because I'm running around like a hairy goat all over the country, um, and it's impacted on, on me. But I can't withdraw from this battle. Um, this is a gentle battle, but I can't withdraw from it, because it's my responsibility now. And the story came to me out of the ground. It wasn't didn't come out of my own genius, because if it had come out of my own genius, I would have thought of it. I would have challenged the things that my teachers told me, but I didn't because I've got only normal intelligence. But when I started reading these things at the behest of my elders and from an Aboriginal point of view, it changed everything. That's, they're the only two things that are different. And 
yeah, sure, people come up to me with tears in their eyes and say the book changed their life. And I say, well, this great land changed both our lives. There has been a, a response. It seems like it's grown steadily in the years since the, the book came out a couple of years ago. Uh, the the notoriety and the influence of the book is that how you felt it developing? Yeah, it's totally word of mouth. The book virtually had no publicity. Uh, it's come out of one of the smaller publishing houses in Australia, an Aboriginal publishing house, which has had trouble getting traction for its books. But this book has been built by word of mouth and a lot of it is due to young people. It's young people who ring me up, who email me, who send the book on to each other um, and they're the promoters of these ideas. Have you seen the dance inspired by the book by Bangara yeah, Dance mate. Company? What did you think of yeah. it? Yeah. Oh, look, I loved that. I loved the whole experience. I loved it when Stephen Page said he was going to do it. I couldn't believe that he was going to do it. I didn't know how he was going to do it. We had, you know, quite a few meetings with the dancers and with Stephen and the choreographers and all of that. And they kept on saying to me, what do you think? And I say, well, look, um, you're the dancers, you're the choreographers. I'm a writer, you know. Um, I don't care what you do. Just honour the book. And I know you will because um, every other thing you've ever done. You know, I've, I've seen every Bangara dance every time they've honoured the culture and enthralled Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal Australians all around the country and overseas. I knew they'd do a good job, so I was just on a bloody picnic, really. And I took my daughter and granddaughter to see the show and there was a little bit of free champagne. You know, what's not to like about it? <laughs> some of the things that I've seen you say imply that you've had some trouble with, I guess, academia about some of the ideas in the book. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, well, I was taken to task by some well-meaning academics who thought that I was trying to pull the wool over Australia, trying to exaggerate Aboriginal performance and achievement. And um, it, it inspired me, actually, because I was on a track and I was writing essays and telling these stories to anyone who would listen. Um, but when I was upbraided and wrapped on the knuckles by Australia's senior academics. Um, I thought, righto, you know, the gloves are off now, um, let's have a go. And so I, I then really devoted myself for five years to the research. And so I've got to thank those people because they, they turned it into a much better book than it would have been if I'd been left to my own resources. But they inspired me because I realised how pernicious this inability to read the history had been. They weren't bad people at all. They gave me a really good cup of tea. They gave me a lovely bit of cake. Uh, they were very kind. They weren't, you know, Tony Abbott in any way, um, but they'd had an Australian education, just the same education I'd had, but somehow or other they hadn't looked at the, the documents that we'd all read in the same way that I'd looked at them. And I, I had this advantage in that my elders had been disgusted by my ignorance of Australian history, their history, and they had been so patient with me over 20 years. Over 20 years they put up with my stupidity, the way I clung to what I'd been taught, because I, when I was a university graduate, I thought I knew everything. 
Um, I thought, you know, I, I felt kind of apologetic for Aboriginal Australia to a certain extent. And they just persisted and persisted and eventually the light went on and I could see that I would have to write the history of Australia that they wanted and that my family wanted and told from an Aboriginal point of view. So I blame my grandmother because she kept on buying me books when I was a child made me read and she was the one who made me go to school because I didn't really like school at all and um, I did anything to get out of it including running away with my dog several times uh, my grandmother straightened me out You're my sister. 
you are on the Paradigm Shift on Fortriple Z. It is 12.38. That song there was Carrie Ann Cox with Woman Got No History. Carrie Ann Nunga, woman from Western Australia. And that song a bit dedicated to Bruce Pascoe's grandmother who he says uh, he wouldn't have been able to write the book without her, of course, uh, history is full of that. The people who were at home supporting the the famous, often the men who got their names recorded and famous people, but who wouldn't have been able to do it without all the women doing a lot of hard work. Um, so the, the other hidden history besides the Aboriginal hidden history, of course, is the the nameless people through, through the ages who've done all the groundwork. Um, we have been talking with Bruce Pascoe, author of the book Dark Emu, about uh, Aboriginal civilization before colonization and also a bit about the experience of writing that book and entering into the public realm with a, a controversial opinion. Let's go to the last part of my chat with Bruce Pascoe. So since the, the book's come out, I mean, there's been, I suppose controversy from predictable elements, conservative elements, but has there been much issue around the facts in the book? No. Um, a few people have uh, queried, um, you know, details in the book, like where was Sturt exactly on this particular day, things like that. And, I, you know, I, I was actually wrong on, in one of those cases. I, I'd written down the coordinates incorrectly. But um, I know that you know, the conservative elements have had a go, but I haven't read it. You know, someone said to me the other day, oh, you know, those people had a bit of a crack at you a few years back. Well, I didn't read it, and I'm not going to read it. You know, I'm just not interested in that argument. It's a dead argument. You know, it's done and dusted. Let's get on with being a real country and, um, you know, really honouring our land. It's not about being right or wrong. It's about looking after the land and we've done our very best to destroy this land and uh, now's the time for people to come together and really treat the country like it was Australia and not as if it was Kent with all its rain and rich soil. We've got to love our mother and respect her and not be ashamed that she's not as fertile as England, not as fertile as the Great Plains of America. She is who she is and she provided very, very well for people over the longest period of time on earth we've got to respect that she can do it again she wants to do it again as long as we look after and keep her health good because we're trying to destroy the poor old girl you're a, a writer and a historian but also in recent years you you've tried to put some of this into practice and farm some native yams how's that process yeah. going well look it, it, it's going as well as you can expect for a man with no money um I've been trying to get those government departments, you know, whose hearts bleed for Aboriginal people and want Aboriginal people to have jobs and they want them to be off the dole and they want them to do this and want them to do that. And I said, here's a chance to employ Aboriginal people. Uh, just give us a chance. Well, of course, no money was forthcoming because it was all hot air. It was all heart-on-sleeve stuff and no hand-in-pocket stuff. So we're doing it on our own. Um, I bought a run-down poor old farm and that had been uh, overstocked and abused and um, gradually I've got some crops planted 
I've destocked the place of hard-hoofed animals, and as a result, the country has come back incredibly, and I'm gradually converting it to Australian crops. Uh, with the help of my son and family, local Aboriginal people, we're um, we're getting somewhere. It takes a long time. Like just before I spoke to you, you know, I had a water problem. Um, you know, the sort of thing you'd, that happens to you when you, you know, your plumbing's half-assed, you know, because you haven't got any money to do it properly. I will do it properly, but I, you know, when I did it, I didn't have the money to do it. I just needed water in a hurry, and so now's the time to repair what I did before. I'd love to do everything properly once, but, you know, I didn't have the money in those early days, and I still don't have it, but at least I'm, I'm getting somewhere, I suppose. Do you see a potential as a commercial crop of native yams or other things that Aboriginal people had once farmed? Yeah, my oath. Um, we're, we're getting so much interest from bakers and restaurateurs and airlines. They want this food. You know, Australia has changed its mind. and It wasn't changed by the 60-year-olds and the 70-year-olds. It was changed by the 30- and 40-year-olds. You know, the people who are now in charge of restaurants and airlines and um, bakeries. They're the people who, you know, for them it's just a no-brainer. Why aren't we growing Australian grains? You know, that, and Australian grains don't produce as heavily as um, wheat and barley and things like that, but their advantage is they're perennial. They sequester carbon in the soil as a result and being Australian, they love Australia. They love the amount of water they get from us they love the fertility of the soil. Um, they can't see anything wrong with Australia. They want to grow here. Whereas wheat, you know, you have to look after it like it's a whinging bomb um, because it is used to luxury. And we bring it over here and the poor old thing has to struggle its guts out and we have to support it with extra fertiliser, extra water. We can't afford that anymore. We've proven that. Um, you know, flogging the country and then pouring on superphosphate is not the way to go with our agriculture. We've got to look after this old girl and, um, you know, she had these plants. She nurtured these plants. Aboriginal people domesticated these plants and that's the future. All right. Thanks very much, Bruce. Uh, anything else you want to leave us with? Just look after the country. Um, you know, don't despair. Think of the whales and uh, think of all those long-haired hippies that got such bad press who were absolutely responsible for the return of these whales coming up and down our coast now. Without them and without the opprobrium they survived from older Australians um, and other other nations in the world, uh, without them we would have lost our whales. So there's your inspiration. And uh, all of those long-haired hippies were young. They weren't 60 and 70 year old. The people who did the hard work who put up with the water cannons, who went out to sea in the Southern Oceans and that. They're all young, and I have a hell of a respect for them. All right. Thanks very much, Bruce. Good on you.
bites, cannibal tribe 046 sound unlimited death wish Hip hop lives, the list goes on OG kings and queens of the Sydney scene Past the present, arts progressing But can't forget who started the craft we're repping Path we're stepping is part of a vast connection B-boys and girls around the world making their mark With sharpened weapons and master methods Leaving a lasting impression like cool hurt Rather write bars than do school work My crew works in the depths represent two words Hip hop, to pay dues and earn respect first Standing on the shoulders of giants Find us in the lab, got it down over science down by law, four element, hardcore ciphers worldwide underground like uncut diamonds, word them up. Southwest, straight from the streets of the Southwest. Straight out of, straight out of, then it gets straight out of. Southwest, then you can open up a party. Southwest, Southwest, then you can, Southwest, straight from the streets of the Southwest. This, that, where the rubber hits the road SWS, it's time you get to know Those who shaped and molded the growth Gave some youngsters hope and passed them the road This is syndicate, I spit like cold You might have thought I was an Inuit Are you into it? Born and raised on the west side of Sydney Hooked up with mud, now the rest is just history Check the stats, no time for bad manners What matters? Rhymes and break patterns Splash together these birds of a feather, see what happens Bunch of rappers, no actors, ripping it, can you fathom? From the S, D to NYC Catch me free weekly in any CB the story's within you, old and new We cut sick like Naz is holding through Southwest, straight from the streets of the Southwest Straight out of, right out of, then it gets straight out of Southwest, then you can open up a party Motivated to grind and poor transition into rounds and never known the riff and a scratch. Needle to wax, finger string, bass in a slap. I attack like a werewolf, beast beats flesh. Maniac words, spit words in tense. Ah, spit them out like volcanic ash. Evacuate the town cause I'm ready to crash. Repercussion embodiment, hip hop strategist. Birthed in the old school against the establishment. Rocking with legends, this is my brethren. Honor, strength, respect, warm blooded weapons. We roar, roar in the fight. Shut down fools, bigots, and liars who claim to have love with the when they only want to tear it apart like filthy foxes Southwest Straight from the streets of the Southwest Straight out of, right out of, then it gets straight out of Southwest, then you can open up a party Southwest, Southwest, then you can Southwest Straight from the streets of the Southwest Talking about hidden history, there's a bit of hidden history of Australian hip hop. Um, Southwest Syndicate back in the early 90s, they were rocking, uh, making political, multicultural, Aboriginal hip hop music. They had all kinds of different members, but among them were uh, proud Aboriginal people like Monkey Muck, Brother Black, and Ebony Williams. Um, they never made an album though back then, never even made a single official release, but they hung around for a long time playing a lot of gigs. And of course, these days, Australian hip hop is all 
uh, white bros, you know, <laughs> there's a few others as well. But uh, we've got another story of Australian hip hop, but Southwest Syndicate are back. They've released a couple of singles recently. That's the most recent one. Um, and it is called The Next Chapter. And I think it's great to see Southwest Syndicate getting a bit of their proper respects um, as Australian hip hop pioneers. Uh, before that, we were speaking with Bruce Pascoe about uh, his book, Dark Emu, uh, about the response to it. And in that last section about his attempts at farming native crops, I think mainly he is farming Murnong, uh, also known as uh, Yam Daisy. Um, and, yeah, trying to, I guess, recover this land to something of what it once could have been or what it once looked like as a, a fertile a land, which as we go into ecological crisis, we might need to do more and more, uh, restore this land to something that can survive extreme weather conditions as we've seen this summer. Um, it is certainly an extreme time. If you are stuck at home, self-isolating, there's worse things that you could do than read Dark Emu by Bruce Pascoe. Uh, you can get a hold of that book in various places, most good bookstores and online places, I'm sure. Um, it is certainly an interesting book and it's been probably the most influential Australian book of the last 10 years, I would say, even though um, you had people like Richard Flanagan winning the Booker Prize and things like that. Few people, few books have caused as much uh, conversation and as much uh, interacting with new ideas as Dark Emu. And so it was great to chat with Bruce Pascoe. That was an old an interview I did probably a year and a half ago. There's a lot of things in the Paradigm Shift archive that maybe we'll dig out a bit um, for the future. That, um, well, it is 12.51 now. Um, I'm going to go out with a very long song to finish with. I'll be back on the Paradigm Shift. You will be able to hear um, more radical ideas to get you through what is a crazy time. I think we Paradigm Shift might be what we need. All Everything that we once were certain about is in flux at the moment. And so um, we'll be continue bringing those radical ideas, including I might be around in Brisbane for a while doing a few Paradigm Shift shows too. I'm going to go out with another sort of hidden album. It's an album that very few people know about. It is a pretty amazing and strange um, little compilation. It's called Corroboration. It was made in 2001 of some of the leading uh, alternative rock or alternative music figures in Australia at the time collaborating with... Aboriginal artists um, to to make uh, songs of different styles. There's all all kinds of different people in there um, and different genres. Uh, it's a great album. I don't know how easy it is to find that. It is in the Triple Z library. Um, I'm going to play this track by Magic Dirt, who are a band I absolutely love, who have recently been reissuing some of their uh, catalogue. Uh, Magic Dirt playing with Richard Franklin, Aboriginal singer-songwriter and sort of public intellectual. Um, this song's called Who Made Me Who I Am. It's quite a long one. This is it. That's it for the Paradigm Shift. We'll catch you next week. <laughs> 
this country. Yeah, really? Yeah, no black person born before 1967 was a citizen of this country. Oh, I never knew that. Yeah, well, when I grew up, I grew up under what they call the assimilation policies. Yeah, well, tell me about that. Well, they took away one in six Aboriginal kids, my friends, my family, my cousins. Oh, they never taught us that sort of stuff in school. My mother, she kicked the ass of a mining company fighting for her land. She was fighting for her land. She kicked her ass all over this country. Come <laughs> on. 
Washington's treeless overnight suburbs. Sets a single mother in a two-day-old newspaper and she cries for the young girl found dead on the train and sheds a tear for the businessman's family and reads a statement from the law which says the young boy was locked up under some politician laws and hell, hell, leader, I think of mandatory sentencing and hell, I think of Jesse Custody and hell, I think of all those mother's tears crying for their children in jail and hell, I think of Lady Tidal Tongue wide, can I get my mind? My tongue wide, can I make it easy?